Since May 2022, interest rates have gone up at the fastest pace ever, meaning borrowers who were previously paying sub 2% are now routinely paying something in the vicinity of 6% for their mortgage. Of course, this creates an enormous pressure on household cash flows for existing borrowers, as well as dramatically reducing the amount new borrowers can get access to. You'd think there'd be a mass of distressed sales, and yes, there are some, but it is not widespread. Clearly, enough people are able to manage the higher repayments. And you'd think this would have smashed property prices, and yet the opposite is and has been happening in many of our markets. Clearly, there's still plenty of people who are able to get access to finance and are willing to buy property in this environment. So what is happening with lending at the moment? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Awards. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. This week, we've invited one of Chris's colleagues in the mortgage space for a discussion on what's been happening in lending. Daniel Gold runs a business called Long Property and he's one of the top mortgage brokers in Melbourne. He specialises in providing a high-end service predominantly to professionals and self-employed clients. And today we want to dig into the different policies we are seeing across the banks, how debt stress is playing out, what refinancing opportunities people have and also how investors are responding to current conditions. Thanks so much for joining us today, Daniel. G'day, Veronica and Chris. Glad to be here. Dan, thanks so much for coming on, mate. And um, apologies for having to do this a second time. Nearly 300 episodes we've done on Siona One's ever gone corrupt. So we're going to keep this interesting because we did this about three months ago, which no one's heard or heard about, but um, a lot's changed. I mean, before we sort of go forward about uh, what you're seeing on the ground today, interesting to see from, from your point of view, I mean, going into 2022 and, you know, interest rates going through the roof and borrowing capacities fallen. I mean, are you sort of surprised at you know how resilient the property market's been, and you know are, are your clients surprised as well? Yeah, absolutely, Chris. I, I think we're all very surprised. Uh, you know, there was all those doomsday forecasts. Uh, you know, when interest rates started speeding up, that the property market was was heavily at risk. Um, you know, there's a lot of fear and uncertainty, and it just really hasn't proven to be the case. Uh, the market's been very resilient, and um, you know, I think it's a shortage of supply. Uh, particularly of good quality stock that that really is um, you know playing into that, but uh, no, thankfully for existing property owners, anyone that that bought you know maybe um, dur- during those scary times that that may have felt a little bit uneasy after their purchase, you know I, I think they're um, you know sitting back and and quite pleased now with with how the market's been performing. It's interesting you mentioned about the shortage of stock, Daniel, and and sort of. The inference there, I guess, that you think that might be part of what's underpinning the property market. But even with a shortage of stock, if people can't get access to money, they can't buy what's available, right? So the shortage of stock, there's lots of reasons why that might be the case. Some people are actually arguing that that might be just like a permanent reduction in the sense that we just got less less coming on the market, less transacting, we're, we're staying in our properties longer. Um, but how is it that people are still getting access to the money despite such a dramatic increase to repayments and also a dramatic fall to borrowing capacities, do you, in your opinion? Yeah. 
That's a great question. I, I think, and, and Chris would be able to obviously talk to this as well, the, 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 the banks are very much open for business. They're, they're looking at ways to help and support clients, albeit with you know, stricter lending requirements and conditions than, than you know, we're, we're more familiar with in the past. So um, you know, they're, they're still buffering up uh, debts at generally 3%, depending on which, which kind of um, tier of banks we're, we're dealing with, and, and that makes borrowing capacity quite constrained. Um, but you know, as long as you tick the boxes, I guess what we're seeing is maybe just a shift in how people are using their borrowing capacity. Maybe in the past, given things were a little bit lenient, it enabled people to purchase a home, but then also start building a bit of a um, investment portfolio. Whereas now, particularly our younger clients are really just needing to consume all of their borrowing capacity. I'm generalizing, but you know, consume a lot of their borrowing capacity just to buy their owner-occupied property. And maybe the investment property falls off the, the priority list for the time being. So that's one example. I think that's a really good point, actually. I haven't thought about that. You know, and that's that's true, right? You know, the, the first home buyer might say, well, I'm not going to leave much buying capacity left over for an investment property because I'm going to go all in on a home. Um, you know, I think not everyone was stretching and using all their borrowing capacity going into 2022, right? It was only maybe, you know, one in four, one in five borrowers were stretching to their absolute limit. So that's, you know, buffeted thing. I mean, Dan, have you seen a big shift in, I'm just not sure, you know, how it's happening, right? Are you seeing a big shift in, you know, intergenerational wealth getting passed down to to younger generations and the biggest deposits you've ever seen with younger clients? Or is that just something we're seeing up here? Yeah. Well, and, and maybe our kind of data set is a little bit skewed there because we're, we're fortunate to be dealing with, with quite an affluent client base. And, and that, um, I suppose, oftentimes is connected with a, a more affluent kind of family type setup. So yeah, it's not uncommon for, for our clients to be um, helped with the bank of mum and dad quite quite considerably in, in, in many regards, but it's all relative. Like uh, you know, people from lower socioeconomic um, type type um, environments could still be you know gifted smaller amounts from parents, but but has a similar impact based on whatever their own property and wealth objectives look like. I, I think that's only going to be a continuing trend. You know, We're, we've got affordability pressures extremely difficult to get into the market and um you know a lot of that boomer generation has benefited handsomely from being in the market for extended periods and that's enabling um absolutely you know young younger clients to to um make moves the, the other thing though is just coming back to the the i guess split with how people might use their borrowing capacity um investors are doing it extremely tough not only on the lending side but I guess the talk of the town in Melbourne at the moment and, and more broadly in Victoria is just, you know, it feels like every month we're just getting hit with some new tax, um, which, you know, property investors uh, are probably bearing more of the brunt of. So, you know, you add that to the lending challenge, challenges and, and just the appetite for, for um, property investment in Victoria is looking pretty grim. Are you finding, though, that your clients previously might have said, look, you want to buy an investment property or buy it in Victoria. Now they're saying, I want to buy an investment property, I want to buy another state. Or they're saying, actually, no, don't want to buy an investment property. I think there's a little bit of the latter. You know what? We don't want to buy the investment property. Um, And I think for others, it's like, oh, well, you know, this is all I can buy. And, um, you know, that's, uh, you know, probably turning them off. For example, a property investor that may have had a budget of a million dollars a couple of years ago might might now be 
limited to you know a few hundred thousand dollars if at anything and um you know there's not much you can really buy with with that amount so rather than really stretching in what's become quite a high interest rate rate environment comparative to what a lot of people are used to and when i say stretching i'm talking about you know maybe second and third tier lenders that might give them more money you know it's it, it, it was all okay paying you know a bit above the odds when interest rates were at two percent but now when you've got to pay a bit above the odds going from you know six to seven plus that just makes the economics really challenging particularly when you know rents have increased but nowhere near to the same extent as interest rates so yeah veronica a lot of people are being turned off it's interesting you're talking about the second tier lenders now i would imagine in a lower interest rate environment where like you're saying that that paying a little bit extra for um more borrowing capacity for the privilege of accessing more borrowing capacity is is more bearable when you offer a very low interest rate um, base. Does that mean, you know, what's the share? I know I, I hadn't sort of preempted this because I hadn't thought of it like this, but do you know what if the share of those, the market share of those second tier lenders is changing as a result of that? It's a good question. I mean, I can just talk to my own kind of activity and whatnot. I mean, um, put it this way. Prior to the Banking Royal Commission, approximately half of all long property loans were written by non-bank lenders, um, whereas in the last 12 months, it would be less than 1% or 2%. So that's an enormous shift. Um, now, there are lots of factors there. It's not yeah. only this concept <laughs> we're talking about around um, you interest, know, rates. Uh, yeah, interest rates and, and, and borrowers not being as willing to, to extend as aggressively. For example, the, the, the major banks... Um, have been very competitively priced over the the last um, you know really eighteen to twenty four months ever since things got a little bit chaotic in in this rate environment. So there hasn't been as much of a need, I, I guess, for multiple reasons. To, uh, at least in terms of my business, to look at as many of the non bank lenders, and it's been a quite a dramatic shift. I mean, Daniel, you've got lots of clients, right? And um you know, you've got people who've got their first home, you've got the upgraders, you've got the first, you know, one, someone with one property, you've got big portfolio investors. Um, you know, there was this whole um, idea that there's this fixed rate cliff and everyone's going to rush and there's going to be this mortgage stress. I mean, you talk about your loan book, right? Um, what are you seeing in terms of, you know, people that are really struggling? Have you got much in arrears? Have you got many people making big cutbacks? Have you got investors running for the exit? Like, Maybe talk through your current clients and, and how they're handling higher rates because it's it's a little bit different to what sometimes people believe. Absolutely. Yeah, look, Chris, employment we all know unemployment is still very low and that's enabling a lot of people to to manage their their debt, I think, um, reasonably well, together with the fact that uh, at least with our clients again, on average people have just over twenty percent of their loan um, limits in offset accounts. So there's still quite healthy buffers there just to ride through this storm, even although um, you know month-to-month commits, commitments might be higher, there's cost of living pressures, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we have not seen very much debt stress, to, to be quite honest. Um, we have had no defaults. We're, we've got no clients that are in arrears. Uh, we've got over you know thousands of clients, so, so that says quite a lot. Um, we, I think the worst that I've seen... Um, since this hiking cycle commenced is I've had a couple of clients that have, um, you know, quite innocently missed um, some repayments, which have then been remedied within the space of two to three weeks. So, you know, very limited. And then 
Um, just in terms of the, you know, what it's like speaking with multiple clients on a daily basis about their their you know lending and property portfolios, there was definitely a lot more angst whilst rates were on the way up as opposed to now, which is I guess uh, now that the a lot of the rate rises have actually flown through the system and and clients are faced with the higher repayments. I guess you know as a result of you know that maybe some buffers and maybe even some increasing incomes in certain circumstances that they've just managed to to um, you know find a way to get through. But uh, there was definitely a lot more panic when you know every second day in the news it was like um, all this fear and uncertainty and people just didn't know how how high things were going to go. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? That if you have no sort of end date, you don't really know, uh, you know, what we're dealing with here. Whereas, I guess people, rightly or wrongly, might feel a, a more of a sense of uh, certainty around now that we've had a couple of months or a few months without any interest rates hikes. Inflation seems to be under control. You know, we're all going, "Yay, great! We can relax a little bit now. Get used to these higher interest rates." But can we go back a little bit back to that the data on the second-tier lender acti- um, market share versus the banks? And obviously, like you said, there was a comp- comparison between before the Royal, the, uh, Royal Commission into banking and so much changed around there. But I guess there's also a difference, and I'm not sure everyone's fully aware of this, that you know banks are under certain responsibilities and, and regulations that uh, some other lenders are not under, correct? Do you want to just explain the difference for us, so we're really clear on on the different operating environments. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, I guess it's the banking regulator APRA that that's responsible for um, you know particularly overseeing the the what we class as the bigger banks, the uh, the authorised deposit taking institutions. Whereas a lot of the smaller non bank lenders um, have different different governance and oversight, um, and it really just enables them to set um, credit policies. Um, that suit them in slightly different ways. Some might say slightly more lenient ways, and that enables them to attract, um, you know, a, a different type of um, borrower set. So, you know, there's really just something for everyone out there in the market. Like, oftentimes, whilst they might be able to do more interesting things that the bigger banks can't, you do you do have to pay for that. Often, in the form of higher fees or higher interest rates and things like that. Um, you know, so so when there is a need for that type of lender or loan product, um, you know, I guess that's the beauty of being able to deal with a broker that can provide them with options and and that's our job to do. But yeah, it just feels that a lot of those lenders have been patiently waiting on the sidelines, you know, just in, <laughs> until such time that they can, um, you know, maybe be a little bit more price competitive because putting aside a lot of the, um, let's call it um, impaired credit for, for, for borrowers that, are, you know, have some you know, nasty credit-related type issues that, that that might prevent them from dealing with mainstream funding. A lot of these smaller banks do often compete on price because they just don't have the the technology and the 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 the, the, the service and support. You know, to otherwise just attract a, a a normal borrower who could otherwise go to the big banks. So the big banks would then attract the lower risk borrower, right? And the higher risk borrower goes to the second tier lender, but Sort of interesting that APRA governs the big banks. APRA's brought in these all these uh, actions towards the end of the teens to limit investor activity, for for example. And yet, the second tier lenders didn't necessarily benefit from those constraints that were applied to the big 
the big four. It's quite, I just quite fascinating that it didn't necessarily pan out as uh, as making, uh, you know, you could have thought that it might potentially just unleashed a whole other marketplace uh, that was not constrained by the same things that the big four were. That's all. It's it's quite interesting to see that it actually has not turned out to be the case. Yeah, yeah, no, that that I I agree. But also, I, I think they'll be they'll be interesting to watch because whilst I was just making some comments earlier about our particular loan book um, and the fact that our, our borrowers, by and large, seem to be holding up very well, I think some of those non-bank lenders um, probably have um, arrears rates that are just ticking up a little bit, um, you know, into uh, let's not say danger territory, but but you know, elevated levels that that they'd be keeping a very close and watchful eye over. So. I don't know, I'd just be even interested in, Chris, do you have thoughts as to how that aspect might start changing their behaviour from a from a lending standpoint? Well, I think their cost of funding would be under pressure, right? Because if their book loan book's not as stable as secure, you would have to want a higher risk for that, right? And so I don't know if there's much, much money in the system to give these non-banks, uh, you know, free, cheap capital, right, um, to lend out freely. And so under this environment, but... um. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of people who have gone to the non-banks. You're right, credit repair is one option, right? But it's, a lot of the time it's people stretching their loan limits, you know, um, for investors. And a lot of those investors, I would say, are running for the hills a little bit, these ones, because if they've they've stretched and then interest rates have gone from, you know, 2 3% to 6 7%, if not higher at some of these non-banks. You know, it that positive cash flow property is definitely no longer positive cash flow, right? Um, plus their home's gone up a lot. So are you finding... Regardless of whether you work with the non-banks or not, are you finding some of your investor clients are selling off one, two, three of their properties? Or we are seeing that a little bit for sure. Um, we also just, you know, in terms of the the property markets that we follow, as soon as you hear a little bit more backstory on the motivations of the vendor for selling, oftentimes it's revealed that you know that the vendor that's selling is an investor that's selling investor stock. So so there's that. Uh, in terms of the non-bank activity. Um, what we're also seeing a lot of is just clients that are currently with some of these non-bank lenders now looking to refinance into more mainstream kind of funding environments to to reduce their interest rates. So that's probably, I guess, a big topic in lending that we haven't really touched on yet is just what's happening with this whole refinance craze. So it's a yeah. huge part of our business, as it would have been, Chris, I imagine for yours, like late last year and early this year, a lot of people just taking a lot more interest in 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 their overall loan portfolio and trying to optimize it you know so we're doing a lot of rate reviews for clients where we're really just trying to you know help help clients um you know weather the storm so to speak so um it's been difficult for a lot of clients to refinance in this higher interest rate environment particularly for those that just took out debt at like the height of the the lending cycle um but you know, some of the banks are starting to make that a little bit easier now with this new one percent buffer um, policy. That really just means that uh, you know it's again a, a more lenient assessment on um, refinances when, when it's like for like debt that's that's being switched over. So yeah, we've we've seen a lot of interest in people with these non non bank lenders trying to refinance to the big four under those policies. So how does that work? I mean, it's funny because I. 
I'm remembering as you're talking about the all the refinancing activity. I'm re- remembering back to 2020 when COVID and we we're all in lockdown, and that's the brokers. You know, the the more proactive brokers who are out there, basically going right. Let's. This is how we're going to keep in touch with our clients. We're going to talk to them about refinancing, et cetera, et cetera. So in a way, if you've got a good habit around that, this is this is just extension of that. But the the one percent. Um, buffer rule, right? How does that apply? Is that for people with an existing mortgage, an existing debt, um, to be able to continue to hold that debt? And as opposed to a new borrower who might be coming in and trying to, you know, can't get 3%, is is that how it works? Uh, sorry, the new borrower comes in, has a 3% buffer, yeah. Yeah, so so new borrowers buying, buying property and taking on new debt is assessed at 3%. There are certain lenders, um, and some by exception, that that are allowing this reduced one percent buffer for clients that are refinancing. So, so this is just to, I guess, um, try and combat that concept of a mortgage prisoner being being stuck at a bank that that you can't get out of because the new rules um, are more onerous than they were when maybe the client first took out the loan. Um, so I think it's good policy from that perspective, particularly if clients can um, meet the eligibility criteria. You, you need to have clean credit. You need to have shown um, the new bank that, you know, over the last 12 months at least, you, you've been making your, your repayments on time, correct, from the, from the existing lender. It's still quite strict. You, you know, most banks don't allow this for interest-only debt. They don't allow it for anybody that's, um, you know, above 80% leverage. There are a few other um, criteria as well, but yeah, we've definitely seen this useful for people that are paying outrageous interest rates with the non-bank lenders um, who wouldn't be otherwise able to go anywhere else at 3%, but at 1% they they can. That said, you know, for people that are already in mainstream type funding, um, one noticeable shift in, in the lending landscape over the last couple of months is this this whole kind of mortgage war, I think, seems to have just subsided a little bit. And in addition to that, the the bank's retention teams have become a lot better in just retaining clients. Like um, it was a bit all over the place, to be quite honest, a year ago. And there were cashbacks and there were crazy discounts and there was miscommunication between all the v- various people involved. But nowadays, it's, you know, for, for a client that's with a, with a half-decent bank, um, and the fixed periods rolling off, or that they're looking to refinance, there's a very high likelihood that that existing bank will will just come to the party and um, you know offer the client a very competitive rate to 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 stick around. Um, and there's not crazy money being thrown every which way to win business or or retain business anymore. It's just a much more balanced market, which uh, I think is good for everybody. I'd actually just like to double up on that with, with Dan right here. It's, um, you know, earlier in the year, absolutely, there was a huge bank's retention pricing wasn't great, you know, but then pretty much they weren't, um, I guess, it wasn't disadvantaged. They weren't saying, oh, we're life- we think you're likely going to leave, so we'll give you a good rate. But if- And we don't think you're going to be able to refinance, so we won't give you a good rate. It was pretty much across the whole board. They were giving everyone, you know, crazy pricing and paying cashbacks, even if they wouldn't refinance. And so- but pro- discounts aren't as big now as they were early in the year. So, that, you know, people who repriced their loans six months ago are probably getting better deals than they, they are today. Um, but there's still an enormous amount of refinancing happening. I mean, it was around, I looked at ABS stats just before, you know, it was like 8 to $10 billion a month we're getting refinanced. But, you know, consistently now for the, the last 12, 18 months, it's like anywhere from 15 to $20 billion a month. Um, and that's people who are actually going through the refinance process 
let alone all the people asking their banks for better deals. Um, that is an enormous figure. I mean, that that's that's not far off just like um, the amount of total loan volumes that would normally be going through the system. For, for in, in terms of our business, um, you know, rewind 12 months ago, refinances would have been 70% of, of all lending activity versus only 30% of purchasing. Um, whereas now that's flipped. It, it's probably back to 70% buying and, and 30% refinancing, which, which is more normal, at least for our business. Um, you know, spring now, there's a, there's a lot more stock that, that um, thankfully has um, hit the market. When that happens, people see the see the stock. They they call people like Chris and I to get pre-approved and um, you know get get their finances in order. So that's good. Like I, I'd say, we've had um, maybe ten clients buy properties within the last couple of weeks. Um, whereas you know this time nine months ago, uh, it would have taken months to to have ten people buy. So um, yeah, things are things are. I, I it's it, everything just feels a lot more balanced. Um, I was at a. There was an auction nearby me um, midweek, which was a crazy result. But in the same suburb, um, there was a very underwhelming result for for a slightly different style of property. And then we're seeing a lot, um, you know, which is just more in that kind of middle ground, which just seems fair and reasonable based on you know recent comparable sales and 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 the, yeah, we're not really seeing high highs or, or low lows. Um, either there, which which I think is encouraging. It's a good market to participate in for for everybody. <laughs> I was at an auction on as you I was at. Th- uh, we had three auctions on Saturday, and one of them it was really interesting. It was a townhouse. Uh, it had some sort of filtered harbour views, but they weren't harbour bridge views. They were just filtered sort of harbour and city views, um, and it was quite dated. Need a bit of work, you know. Nothing particularly special about the actual townhouse itself. And um, two, I'm presuming empty nesters, and I'm guessing maybe not borrowing. So, you know, in turn, the context of this conversation, I'm guessing not borrowing. Two empty nesters, we were well and truly out, and they pushed it between them 800000 over what I could have thought was at, at a stretch okay value, right? And nearly 900000 And it was so incredible, not only because the last sale, which in the in the complex was in March, so we're talking October, the last sale was in March, so seven months earlier, and it sold for 2.57, and this one went for 3685 Oh, my gosh. So there was nearly a million dollars in it just from these two people that just went hammer and tongs. It was fascinating just to watch them go at it. And, and would, it be, think, would it be fair to assume that there was just, you know, very little else available on the market for, for buyers like that, that that compared? Or like, is that the reason? Yeah, but you know what's so incredible? I'm sitting there watching it goes, there was, it was only March. There was one other in this complex in March. Do you know what I mean? And this is, you know, you get people go to auction where they're not fettered. They're not, they're not constrained by their borrowing capacity. But for whatever, luck, abs- this is luck. For the vendor, it's luck because everybody in that complex is now thinking their property's gone up a million dollars. And I'm telling you right now, I've, I, I'd struggle to find someone to take on the underbidder in another auction and push the price up that far again. You know, it, it, that, that's just pure luck. But what's always interesting, any buyer in any context isn't necessarily pulling themselves out, doing the helicopter view and understanding, okay, yes, there's a stock shortage right now, but the stock exists 
it, you know, something will come up, you know, and I think that's when they, when they lose all sight of that is when they go crazy. But that, that's just, and at the same time, you know, we've got Sydney clearance rates where for the weekend was 68%. So that's in the balanced territory. You know, you don't see eight, $900,000 over what you can perceive to be fair value in a balanced market very often, you know, but I think that sort of comes back to also, you know, I just wrote a, an article on Sydney property market and, and why investors should still consider it, right, for API magazine. Um, and in doing that research, it's just always fascinating for me when I start looking at history and numbers and all the rest of it and see what's been happening. Certainly a market like Sydney is underpinned by capital growth and, and the people that are already in that market have equity in the properties that they have. And so if they're going to invest or if they're going to upgrade, they're not borrowing the total value of the property. You know, and this is what a lot of people go, how could the first home buyers, you know, pay two and a half, or maybe not a first home buyer, but how could a, a young family afford two and, a, two and a half million dollars for a house or three million dollars for a house? I'm like, they're not borrowing 80% of that. You know, they're, they're upgrading from their first property. And I guess from where you sit, you must see that in your, in you know, with your Melbourne-based clients a lot as well, right? That there's, once you're in the market, if you've managed to get yourself a good asset, then you can continue to play in such a market. But yeah. and you also said that you're you're working with sort of, you know, your professionals and, and um business owners. There and and your clients aren't um aren't really suffering mortgage stress in the same way as being publicized in perhaps other segments of the market. Do you believe that there are a whole segments of the market that are much more, I guess, vulnerable to that because they don't have the benefit of that equity? either comes through their family or from their own purchases. I mean, because all I can see is that that just seems to be, that seems to be the problem, I guess, of the market moving forward. Would you agree or you don't get insights into that? Yeah, oh, we, we don't see as much of it, but but I I definitely think that there would be areas that, that are facing elevated levels of, of stress now. Um, you know, there would be those, I guess, you know, maybe younger borrowers, younger families that have stretched. Maybe they're they're in areas that um, you know they they're more susceptible to you know um, or maybe they're in industries wh- whereby they they might be more susceptible to losing work and and that's going to really put you know a heap of stress on on their 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 budgets. Um, but yeah, coming coming back to the, um, the the investor again and and maybe the prospects for Sydney. It's like you said it perfectly it is all underpinned by capital growth like if you just looked at the the you know economics of holding an investment property in sydney right now any, anything half decent like it's going to cost you a lot of money in pre-tax kind of cash flow to to sustain even if you're not heavily leveraged like um and therefore you're only going to do that if you um have a good income yeah well have a good income and and you know see the capital growth to to absorb the losses, really, um, you know, I'm I'm thinking back to the the handful of investor clients that we've had that that have transacted in the last few months, and yeah, I mean, you know, that they, they tick the boxes in terms of having a lot of equity and having a lot of spare cash flow, but there just aren't many borrowers out there that that can confidently tick all those boxes. I, I should say, and they are already comfortable in their own home, you know, so they don't need to use any more borrowing capacity to 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 fix that. And that's a good point too, because you know it's something a conversation that, that Chris and I've had a number of times that people sort of say, "Oh, look, I want to invest," and it's like, "Well, hang on a minute, investing in your own home and upgrading your own home and 
and making sure you've got enough room for your, your growing family is still investing. I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions. And you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au. And there you'll find resources for first home buyers, details about my buyer's agent mentoring program, access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or lower north shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. If you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one, or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly, get the finance right. Please reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. Yeah, yeah. More exposure, I guess, to the market. The, the, the other clients that we're seeing invest a little bit, there, there are some people that I guess it, it speaks to the whole being comfortable in their um, you know principal place of residence. That doesn't necessarily have to be owned either. Like I do have a couple of clients that are just, they've, they've made the decision that they're going to be rent vesting long term um, and they're, they're now you know pursuing, uh, just had one who transacted this weekend, it's just gone from his first to his second investment property, knowing that that will probably push out the prospects of him and his wife owning their owner own sorry their owner occupied home um, any sooner. But you know they like where they live. Um, they they can't afford to buy where they are, but they can certainly continue renting there. Um, and then just to gain kind of more exposure to um, real estate and and keep their money working hard for them. You know they they've bought the second investment property. So I guess that that. You know, there, there, there's that client as well that that um, is still going to be active in in the investor market. I think you're right. So when you look at the investor numbers, um, you know, and you got this rental crisis, right? I think there's a lot of investors that are bailing, right? That aren't seeing the capital growth returns. Aren't you know, even though the rents have gone up, they can't afford the mortgages. They want to keep their home. They're bailing, and you can see that in unit apartment data. You know, the listings on units are way up. They're up at, you know, particularly in Sydney, they're at 10-year highs. In houses, they're at 10-year lows, right? So that shows that, you know, investors are selling, owner-occupiers are really holding. And um, But I think the new investors coming to the market, it's a bit different, right? Because the first-home buyer that probably wants a house to live in um, can't doesn't have the budget to get something they want to live in. So they're going and buying investment property. So they're still renting, so they're not, you know, reducing the rental demand. But they're increasing rental stock by, but they're not doing that in an area where, you know, generally capital cities, they're playing in more the regions and the outer, you know, not the more affluent areas. And I think you're right that you can think of a client who's bought last week as well. You know, technically, they probably should sell their first investment property um, instead of buying a second investment property. And that was what we advised them to do. Um, But they couldn't, you know, they had to pay capital gains tax. it then meant that they'd have to go into a bigger debt on their home in the 6% interest rate environment. So they, they went the easy option. The comfortable option is let's continue renting and let's just buy another investment property and delay the owner-occupier decision. So I think a lot of rental uh, investor sort of demand right now is driven by tight borrowing capacities and higher rates. People are like feeling it's easier because you get the rental incomes to go down that option rather than you know upgrade their home. It sounds like you've got clients doing similar like They'd love to buy a house, but they're buying investments instead. Yeah, and then and then also we haven't really touched on um, building, construction, development, that type of thing. But we do have quite a few clients that have gone down that path. 
it's 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 really interesting like i think the economics for development are, are really challenged at the moment and i've, I've actually got two close clients slash friends who i rate very very highly in, in terms of their skill and ability in 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 development that are leaving that industry and pursuing other interests because you know they 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 can't get really the the economics to work and they they just can't earn what they need to earn um pursuing those endeavors anymore but equally i you know i see a lot of clients that are putting quite a bit of money into their owner occupied properties just to improve them by way of refurbishment and development and they seem to be creating still some pretty decent equity out of that they're not building let's call it um smaller type stock to sell they're they're increasing the value of their family homes and i don't know the the from the the sale results i've seen you know um that the economic seems to stack up even in this environment of elevated interest rates and building costs um so yeah i don't know chris are you are you seeing any clients kind of follow that strategy or, or not really so we've seen a huge change in uh, the demand for construction loans so going back to 2020 2021 we have lots of clients wanting to do million dollar plus builds it was it was crazy everyone wanted to do and you, you could see that in terms of um, the construction when you drove around, but I do think a lot of that's tapering off. We don't see many clients that are wanting to go all in on a big build. And so I think the, you know, the higher end sort of the bigger builds, I think they'd be struggling for, de- for new customers. And I, you know, anecdotally speaking to architects, that's what I heard, but we're seeing lots of clients who are doing scaled back renovations. So they're doing sub 500 renos. Like instead of doing the additional level, maybe they're just make, making a three bed really work, you know, by extending out the back. So I don't know if we, we're just seeing they're doing a smaller version of what they'd ultimately want to do just to make it big enough to suit what they need because they can't afford to upgrade, but they do need the space. Well, that well, that's, a, yeah, I think that's the motivation But behind the clients that I'm thinking through that the upgrade is difficult in this environment where capacities are constrained and prices are so high, but, um, you know, you can get decent bang for your buck if you like where you live and, and you put a bit of money into it and you're willing to, you know, take the time because it's not, not quick. Although that also just reminds me of, you know, some of this reform. Um, I'm not sure if your your audience might be interested in this new housing reform that was announced by the Victorian government just before Dan Andrews resigned. Um, but it was all about, you know, just increasing the supply of, of new dwellings and, um, you know, some of the big policy changes there were along the lines of cutting through the red tape and, and just reducing the amount of time it would take for people to get planning approval for their developments, um, proposed developments. So, um, yeah, that's also been a bit of a theme. Um, uh, this is separate to some of those new taxes that we touched on earlier. But, um, yeah, Victoria is looking to try and build 800,000 new properties over the course of the next 10 years, which, which feels like a very ambitious target. Um, and, you know, particularly for developers who can't get the economics to work, um, you know, it'll, it'll be interesting to see whether it can be achieved. I'm, I'm somewhat doubtful. Um, and the feedback that I'm hearing from some of our development clients is a little bit underwhelming, but in theory, like, um, you know, that the, the planning system is, you know, heavily bureaucratic and, and taking a lot of time and, and improving that is a good thing. I'm just not sure if it's enough. We've had a number of conversations on the podcast around this. It's all well and good to, to say, you know, you're going to support to have this many properties built but then it's not that simple and even if you free up land if you free up zoning 
um, then developers don't necessarily suddenly go, oh, excellent. I, you know, I've always wanted to build that, you know, 10 story block of units there. And now I'm going to do it because that's all I've been waiting for. I mean, yeah, well, they're certainly not going to do it if it, if it doesn't stack up and they're going to exactly you know, right. break even, for example. <laughs> yeah. And if they can't get, if the costs have gone up, they can't get, they can't get trades or just effectively the market won't bear the cost of, or the price that they need to sell at to make it work for them. Yeah, so it's all well and good to have these policies in place, but also if you suspect that you can, if you hold out a bit longer and put the government over a barrel, um, you might be able to get, I don't know, a thousand units, whereas previously it's only 600,000, you know, 600 units. You know, there's some large developers that have some very, very large sites tied up, just sitting there land banking, waiting, waiting, waiting until they can actually get a much greater return. They really accelerate that return. And so this is the problem. There's just so many different levers in this, this space. It really, governments need to to start building. <laughs> you know, I mean, if they really want to do it. They're going to have to start doing it. Well, that's actually one of the taxes that was just announced, which is this vacant land tax. Um, basically, one percent on the improved value of of um, dwellings that haven't been rented um, for at least six months in the year. Um, and it's interesting. You said, you know, the government needs to do it because, you know, to to just I guess absorb some of the pushback. They've said, hey, this this applies to the land owned by the the Victorian state government as well. Um, but yeah, it's it's heavy, It's very controversial because you're basically saying develop or sell, and you know some of these developers may not want to develop if they just can't make money out of the development. So what do they do? They either have to sell or pay more tax, and neither of them are probably the best outcomes for them either. But it is interesting because there there certainly are developers that have bought you know bought sites and they've got the wherewithal to be able to hold those sites. Waiting, waiting, waiting for a for a, a, a substantial increase in what they can build on it, and so it's interesting. But the smaller developer who's just doing this, you know, the normal thing that small developers would do, I think that's really hard to to impose something like that on them because that wasn't the rules going in. But at the same time, they they stand to make enormous gains, you know, when when zoning has changed or the rest of it. So so that's all part of the risk of of being in property development, but. Those larger, I, I've heard in, in Sydney, for instance, a number of huge sites in, in entire subdivisions that that sitting there just waiting, 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 uh, really until there's there's a much greater uh, return for developers. And that's not just the apartment space; that's also in the um, in the house and land package space as well. Well, I've, I've got I've got some clients similar who who are like, um, you know, let's say they're sitting on a thousand square meters, and previously. Under the old rules, that may have enabled them to build three nice townhouses. But with current building costs, interest rates, and end sale values, that doesn't work. With some of this reform, if that means they can take that same thousand square meters but build fifteen apartments, um, you know, if you know that that could completely change the economics of their potential development. And then, you know, in in a way, everyone could win. The the there's more housing stock, which is the government's main objective, and. If that also means the developer can can achieve his or her required profit margin, then then maybe it gets out of the ground. But yeah, we're just kind of working through all this because there's so much to take in, and you know, not all of it's actually been legislated yet. It's it's really just going through the system now. Yeah, I wouldn't mind talking you through the. Uh, there's been a tack on Airbnb down there, and I mean, even the vacancy tax. I mean, how does that work if you've got a second home, like a holiday home down the Mornington Peninsula, and you know, you're living in your house in Turak or, you know, Brighton or uh, Northcote, et cetera. Um, 
you know, it seems like that that's really hard to to sort of make work. You know, higher interest rates. Um, I can't. Maybe they're going to bring in limits on how much you can Airbnb it as well. I mean, they're charging a tax. Who's to say they don't bring in a day limit as well? Like, how's that second home, holiday home? shifting over the last 12 months for your clients? It's been a really challenging market and a lot of our clients do own real estate in, in those areas in the peninsula. I guess th- these are the types of assets where you, you do a portfolio review and if you're concerned around cash flow or limited buffers and you need to find ways to stay in the game, you know, um, you know, there'd, there'd, there'd absolutely be a number of clients that use this opportunity to sell down an asset um, to, re- to reduce some debt. And, and, you know, often it's the holiday home or, like you say, the second house that, that goes. Um, my, my take on that, w- without being the property expert, I, I guess more the finance guy, but on the property side, like um, th- those markets are facing a lot of um, headwinds at the moment, right? There's, you know, I keep a pretty close eye on the portals in those areas and every day there's five or six new listings. Whereas in Malvern East, where I live, maybe there's one every couple of days. And Mulvaney is actually a bigger suburb than Mornington or, or Mount Martha, for example, much bigger. So, um, yeah, there's there's the Airbnb tax, 7.5%. There's there's the the vacant property tax. Um, you know, there's, there's other pressures like um, a lot of larger organizations trying to get people back into the, 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 the city. Um, so, yeah, I... I you look at the capital growth prospects in the short term in those markets, um, and again, remembering that they had some pretty heavy gains um, during the pandemic, you, you think that the short-term prospects would have to be quite challenged. Longer term, you know, probably looks a little bit better. Um, you know, there's always, I guess, bad news that challenges the markets in the short term, but um, there's a lot going for those markets too. they absolutely beautiful they're they're an hour to an hour and a half outside of the melbourne cbd um you know you you'd have to think that with limited land there you, you'll do okay in the long term but short term pretty tough melbourne's a um the work from home you know melbourne getting its mojo back you know longest lockdowns in the world or whatever it is you know that dan andrews has decided to um leave um has the city got its mojo back is it is it going back to how it was you know like i would say in sydney it's it's it, particularly in the last couple of months, I think there's a, you know, the gravity's taking people back to the city more and more. You know, I'm getting clients asked for meetings. I'm getting, you know, partners. I do think that, you know, there's a desire to connect face-to-face again that, you know, I haven't seen. I think it's really come back in the last few months. But, you know, Melbourne's a city of cafes and restaurants and city culture and events and arts. And, you know, you'd think out of all the cities, it would be a city where people want to get back in the city rather than, you know, stay at their homes. Is that what's, if that, is that what's happening? A, a, aside from the last week where it's been torrential rain? Yes. <laughs> no, I've definitely noticed a lot of that. Um, uh, and and it's, I, I'm noticing it change preferences too. Like there were so many people that were comfortable, I guess, just going further out and yeah. And, and just assuming that, you know that that would be very comfortable. That would just completely disregard any form of commute, and you know um, that 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 uh, value the the space, and um, you know that was the I guess the theme a couple of years ago. Whereas whereas right now, you know I'm, I'm yeah a lot of the clients buying in in some of those areas that you mentioned, the Northcotts, the the Fitzroy North, the the Richmond, the Burnley, the you know um, uh, South Yarra, Paran, Windsor, like it's all just you know, a, a, um, 
a, a quick skip from the the city and I, I i've definitely noticed heightened interest in those areas and you know that that's where we're seeing the big sale prices whereas you know days on market for anything on the peninsula is like i'm seeing properties that that are just languishing there 90 120 four five six months kind of thing and, and it just you know you keep checking in because they're on your saved list and you just see the advertised price dip down a little bit and then dip down a little bit more dip down a little bit more and i just feel that market's needing to find a, a new kind of equilibrium which is a bit lower than than where it's been there are definitely going to be you know your your more scarce assets that are triple a and blah 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 that'll all do amazing in fact i've seen some of them sell really well but just your average property in some of those um, other areas uh, are really, really struggling. Uh, you can't feel too sorry for them. They're still way up from where they were pre-pandemic, but um, you know, definitely, um, you know, on average, maybe 10, 15% down at least from from where they were maybe uh, nine, 12 months ago. I was about to say, it's probably a segment of the market that most people won't have a huge amount of sympathy for anyway. Um, I have to say that I was always amazed, you know, during during lockdowns, how, how this, this sudden exodus started, but it wasn't just the exodus of people, you know, doing that CO tree change, which was, you know, a lot of people talk about, let's face it, we all whinge about our lives, we all talk about how it's going to be better if we can just only get to the country or only get to the coast. But the amount of people that actually bought holiday homes that they didn't previously have, you know, and, and anecdotally, and I kept hearing this over and over again, so I, I assume that there's enough, you know, people where this applied to. It was like, well, we can't go overseas, so we might as well buy a holiday home. Now, obviously, there's a small segment of the market that can afford to do that, and, you know, just because I can't spend my, you know, my 20, 30, 40 grand on my big overseas holiday every year, I'm going to buy a holiday home instead. But it did astound me that such a, a really a long-term asset is bought with such short-term, short-term um, impetus, you know, short-term motivation. Well, as basic basic numbers, I mean, to, to get a really decent, block of land in in any of those kind of holiday home locations in the peninsula you're looking at minimum two million dollars a lot like and that's and that's kind of like entry level for a good block of land average house if you're paying say two and a half mil because you've got you know a nice house there as well and you're leveraging at i don't know maybe 80 percent. that's a two million dollar loan at six percent interest rate, that's one hundred and twenty thousand in 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 cash flow, assuming you're on interest only, right? Um, so if that's just a second home, uh, you know how many people have one hundred and twenty grand um, after tax? Uh, well, that's around. after tax, right? Mm-hmm. If it's not yeah. rented out, and then you know if it if you do rent it out and it's a little bit you know investment initially, you know you're still probably looking at maybe forty grand plus per annum in 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 pre-tax cost to, to run it not many people have that um whereas whereas those same figures would have been what maybe a um two-thirds less two years ago so yeah it's just so much more affordable we haven't spoke a bit about the upgrader so we um mm. i mean if i even went back to the last conversation we had in july yeah. which no one else listened to but um, <laughs> oh yeah, so Chris mentioned earlier, just for listeners wondering, what the hell, why are we having this conversation with Daniel again and yet no one's heard it? Because we recorded a conversation with him in July that somehow vanished into the ether and so we've had to take it as three months to coordinate diaries to do it again. And and it, things have shifted, right? So you mentioned in the last couple of weeks, 10 plus purchases, you know, we got similar, um, you know, more than, it was almost 10 last week, it was crazy, you know. 
and and particularly on the higher end, you know, the multi-million dollar purchases, which were few and far between earlier this year and even late last year. Um, even though that's what's actually led the recovery in Sydney, particularly in Sydney, and I think in Melbourne too, I have to, you know, the, the higher, higher, the upper 25th percentile. Yeah, I think they led the recovery in terms of price growth, but in terms of transactions, I, I think they're way down. Yeah, and so... You know, then and a lot of those would be cash. You know, the the expat coming back or the the cashed up upgrader who's you know got heaps of cash for some reason. You know, maybe they inherited money and so they're not I, borrowing that much money. You're yeah, saying it's unusual, right? Yeah, and I would and I would say that the people who are borrowing money, particularly over the multi millions, taking on big mortgages, were very apprehensive doing that the last you know twelve months. But we've seen it completely shift in the last three months. Um, you know, and have you noticed that similar? You know, these are people who are usually upgrading. You know, whether they've either just sold their property or whether they've still got it and they're buying on long settlements and selling. But have you found there's a renewed, or has that been sort of all the way through over the last twelve months for you? Have you seen there's a real been a consistent for you? I, I think I think that's where we differed a little bit on on the last chat. But you know, maybe maybe that's also because that's very much our niche. That's that's the the lion's share of what we do. I, I guess just naturally within our business. So. It's always been relatively strong, agree um, heightened o- over the last few months. And I think that's just to be expected in light of a little bit more confidence returning in the market. Um, you know, I think three of the four major banks are still predicting that we're done now with any further interest rate hikes. Um, we, haven't, we haven't seen any, any hiking over the last few months. Um, you know, most banks are also predicting rate re- relief and reduction um, over the course of the next 12 to 18 months. So with with that backdrop, I think a lot of people are just getting on with it, um, and even at that those higher price points, Chris, you know, just willing to, I guess, you know, lean in and 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 make it happen. But um, no, we still did have you know clients, I guess, um, you know, nine to twelve months ago that were doing that, and 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 maybe it was that client that would have otherwise been, um, you know, doing that and investing, you know, they instead didn't invest but still you know did everything they could to to transact on the the family home kind of thing but um yeah if, if the last few weeks are anything to go by then you know i think we'll see a, a lot more of that and uh, that result that the auction result that i mentioned from last week was very much ticking those boxes big kind of six plus million dollar home in Malvern that, that just flew yeah i think there's a little bit of pain for that person because um, the first home buyer is usually just they, they're trying to buy whenever they can buy, right? They, you know, they, and particularly under rental stress, they're just trying to enter the market. When they got the deposit in Sydney, they could buy up to 1.5 million without stamp duty earlier this year. And they were in the market, but I think that upgrader was, you know, listening to the, the Chris Joys of the world and what he's negative, isn't he? Very negative. Well, they were just, you know, there was a belief he'd done very well, but you know, there was a belief that prices were falling 15, 20%. And, you know, that's really good in upgrading your prices fall. You know, you could potentially, you know, your place doesn't fall as much as one you want to upgrade into. Um, True, but it's a psychological barrier and a lot of people really struggle with that. Yeah. They struggle with selling at less than what they thought it was worth, even even if the transact the gap to transact isn't, isn't as big. You know, smart people really struggle with that. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. People are just trying to win on their home plus win on the purchase and win everywhere, you know, et cetera. Um, but I would say that they've been caught out a little bit. Um, and the prices of the properties they want to buy have now started to run on them. And then they're seeing they have to make more compromises. And they're like, actually, if I don't get in now and prices go up another 10%, I'm out. Um, 
And I think that's encouraging. That's a good point. Forcing that upgrader to to transact. And um, because they've seen price, like, so once they saw price growth, they're like, uh oh, I, I need to do this. Otherwise, I won't be able to do it. And well, that's right. There were a lot of people that were just hoping for, you know, the the lull or reduction in, in market prices and now realizing that that's not coming. They're like, all right, you know what? We've got to go a suburb out or we've got to, you know, go a little bit smaller or whatever, but get on with it. Yeah. So, Dan, can you finish with a property dumbo, mate? I know you need to run in a couple of minutes. Will you hit us with a good story? <laughs> no, just just the one that uh, my colleague mentioned to me, which was um, this idea of uh, on a, a property that he actually bought successfully, but um, during the auction, he was the only bidder and he decided to put his bid in below the vendor's bid, which is unusual. Normally, the vendor's bid kind of gets things going and it's like your your baseline. So, everyone laughed at him apparently at this auction. You know, how, how do you bid below the vendor bid? But, um, you know, the vendor can't ultimately sell the property to him or herself um, and ultimately, the vendor has to negotiate with the highest real bidder, which in this case was my colleague. Um, and he he kind of walked away successfully with the property. So not really a stuff up, but um, you know, on face value, a lot of people may have thought this inexperienced um, purchaser was stuffing things up. It, it worked out in his favor. No, the Dumbo are the people that laughed at him and didn't realize that you can do it. Absolutely can do it. I, I've, I've had arguments with auctioneers before. I'm saying... And they're like, no, the bid's at X because, and I went, no, that was a vendor bid. Yes, but it's a bid. No, it isn't. The vendor wants to buy their house back. It's a bid, but do they really want to? No. So if you want to negotiate, we're going to have to, I've actually had them retract the vendor bid before, which is, it's, it's, it just makes me laugh. But yeah, so they're the dumbos. The people laughed at him. So your you mate was, yeah, well done. He was spot on. And, <laughs> yeah. and just one, one last thing I want to mention before we wrap up. Uh, I, last time, the episode that no one heard, you did ask me, um, you know, if if there was anything that um, you know I'd gathered just from the 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 you know many conversations over the years that we've had with clients, and I don't think I gave you the best answer before, but I did think about it a little bit after the recording as to you know what 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 really are some of the takeaways. Um, and anyway, it actually encouraged me, Chris and Veronica, to write a little um, blog post on that same topic, which I did, um, and. It was along the lines of what I've learned from some of my better clients is they really just seem to focus on the micro more so than the macro. So, you know, the macro being actually some of the things we've spoken about in terms of, you know, a lot of the headwinds that are facing property investors at the moment in particular. Um, but I guess the better perform or the better clients that have that have done well out of real estate, at least in my experience, are the ones that have just focused on, you know, the the how to more so than the when to of this real estate world. So, you know, what does a phenomenal property really look like and how do you buy that well as opposed to trying to, you know, pick pick the eyes out of the market from a timing standpoint? Great insight. And if you want to share your blog, uh, the link, yes. we're happy to put it in the show notes. But it, it's the thing I talk about all the time. People are trying to use aggregated data to use individual property decisions and you can't. You've got to. You've got to understand the micro. And um, so that sounds great, Daniel. Thank. Yeah, do we'll make sure that's available in the, in the show notes. And thank you so much for joining us again. And sorry to everybody for only hearing one version of this conversation. <laughs> I'll, I'll just pretend that I'm your favourite guest, which is why I got the second invite back. And you, 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 uh, <laughs> you purposefully lost the first recording. Well, funnily enough, there have been times when we have not actually published, not often, very, very rarely, but we've had the odd one we haven't published. 
So um, it must have been good, otherwise we wouldn't have got you back to try and do it again. <laughs> I, lo- I love the work that you guys are doing. You're putting out some great content, so keep it up, and uh, hopefully we'll chat again soon. Thanks very much. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.